Well, good morning and uh, welcome to Restore Church. Uh, my name is Roger and uh, I'm the lead pastor here. Um, and we're, we're really thankful for you and that you are here to worship God with us. Uh, as Josh said, man, uh, we believe that the church is lived out completely uh, Monday through Saturday. Um, Sunday mornings gives us a time to gather together to worship God, experience His presence together, um, to, to use God's Word to, to build one another up, a place for us to rest, uh, to be challenged, uh, to be excited about God's Word. And that's what we're going to do this morning. Uh, in January, we began a new series called uh, New Me, Who This? And the idea is that every new day presents an opportunity to be new. Uh, but, you know, we get excited about the new year and, uh, and, and becoming a new person, uh, reading more or losing weight or whatever it is for you. But what we really know is that we need to be renewed and what it means to follow Jesus and what it means to be a Christ pursuer and a Christ follower. And so we decided to do together at the beginning of the year was just tackle the book of John. And so throughout the year, uh, through various parts, we're going we're gonna to tackle the whole book. Uh, we will finish the whole book of John uh, throughout the year. Uh, and so this morning, we're going to be in John chapter 4. Hey, what happened last week, which was, was an, it was an accident, but it worked out great. I'm fixing this so there's not an accident up here for you to put on YouTube later or something. Not that you're recording the but anyway, uh, what we did last week was an accident, but it worked out really great. Is We didn't have scripture slides up here. There's going to be a shift we're making as a church starting today. Uh, technology has made me lazy. Yeah, I'll blame it on technology, that it's made me lazy. Uh, technology has made me lazy in that, I, you know, you guys remember the days of having to go to the catalog in the library to look up something in the encyclopedia? Nowadays, we just download a book right to our, you know, you don't have to go to the bank anymore. You don't have to go to the bank anymore. You can just uh, deposit your checks right there uh, from your phone. That's scary, guys. But I know it's scary, but I do it anyway, right? Uh, technology's made us lazy. In the f- in church, it's done the same thing in the sense that uh, we don't look at our Bibles very often anymore, right? I mean, we've got the screen. Why should we? And so one thing we're going to start doing is not putting our main scriptures up on the screen anymore, but we're going to look at it on our phones, on our devices, uh, or uh, in, in the Bible, okay? And the reason being, I have a Bible that is old and needs to be retired, but I don't know how I stand theologically about retiring a Bible. What do you do with it? Oh, good. Yeah. You can't throw it away, right? I mean, that's just not right. They'll put me in the back of the line to heaven if I throw my Bible away. I can't do that. So anyway, but what happens to me regularly is uh, I don't remember where the verse is in the Bible, in my Bible, but I can remember where it is on the page. And so I'll skim through. So it's just important for us to be able to look at our Bibles and find out where passages of Scripture are. Uh, You know, use your phone, use technology, whatever you have to do, but we want to look to God's Word. So we have Bibles scattered throughout, uh, up the rows. So if you see a stack of Bibles and you need one, you can grab one. We also have a few volunteers that would be willing to pass one out. If you don't have a Bible, we want you to have one. This can be our gift to you. We'd love for you to have a Bible, take it home and read it and study it. Uh, you can follow along with us on the YouVersion Bible app uh, if you want to. If On there, if you download the YouVersion Bible app, there's a tab that says events or live events, and you can see Restore Church is one of them. 
If you have the Restore Church app, you can click uh, on the bulletin tab. And you can see all the announcements that we had. You can see the songs that we sang. But again, you can follow along on the Bible on our Restore Church app also. Um, so I just want to tell you a little bit about where we're going uh, in a couple weeks, and then we'll, we'll jump right into John 4. So go ahead and, uh, and find John 4 on your device or in your Bible. Hey, if you're following along with me in one of the Bibles our volunteers just passed out, it'll be on page 500, uh, page 500 in one of these, John chapter 4. Uh, in a couple weeks, uh, we're going to do a series called ATM, um, and we're going to talk about how does God think about money. Uh, here's, here's the catch. We are going to ask you to give, all right? Uh, but our church is not about money. Uh, we want to be good stewards of what God has given us, and we want to be good stewards of the responsibility that God's given us also. Man, we think that God is calling us to do so much here in Jacksonville, not as far as growing a large church, but as far as reaching a lot of people for his name, whether they come to our church or not. Um, and so we believe that God's vision is huge, and we're going to ask God to help us get there. And a part of that is us being responsible with the finance that God gives us, okay? So I, I wanted to give you a heads up that that's coming. Uh, we're going to do John 4, 5, and 6, and then we're going to do a series called ATM. I'm going to have a friend of mine, a mentor of mine from Two Rivers Church in New Bern, David McCants. He's going to preach that first week of it, uh, and then I'm, I'm preach the rest of it. So anyway, I don't want to scare you. Uh, we're going to talk about how to manage our money. I'm not going to stand up here and beg you uh, to give. You might have scars from churches that just want your money or mismanage money or whatever. I'm not going to stand up here and beg you to, to you know, clear out your bank account, go sell your home, and give the proceeds to the church. But if the Lord led you to do those things, who am I to stand in the way? Um. I love uh, the book of John. Story by story, John, who was best friend with Jesus, Jesus' best friend, gives us glimpses of who Jesus is as 100% human and 100% God. What's really interesting is that it's not John <clears throat> sitting down dictating the story as Jesus tells him, Right? Jesus isn't like, John, tell them this. Write down this. Tell them this about me. But John is using the stories of people to tell the story of Jesus. Did you catch that? John is using the stories of people to tell the stories of Jesus. In 2015, God called me and my family to come plant a, a church here in, Restore, or here in Jacksonville. We didn't know the name of the church. We didn't have a mission. We didn't have anything. Uh, one of the very first questions someone asked us uh, when we told the congregation we were serving there uh, in Elizabeth City, North Carolina, we said, we're going to move to Jacksonville and start a new church. And they said, how many members go there? And I was like, four. Me, my wife, my two-year-old, and my four-month-old. And so uh, in 2000, it was kind of a long journey. In 2016, we moved here. March of 2017, we started uh, Restore. So we're going to celebrate our second birthday in March. Um, and man, we're, we're really excited to do that. Anyway, a, a part of that journey was to find out what, what are the things that are going to be most important to us as a church in living out the mission of God. Real quickly, the restoration, everybody needs to be restored authenticity, you're going to see in a minute, we don't hide anything. We want you to be who you are because that's who God created you to be. We're going to be who we are. Don't pretend to be anything you're not here. 
community over isolation. You can't live life by yourself, let alone be a Christian by yourself. Josh said it, church is lived out in living rooms and in hospitals and at the funerals of your best friends, parents, families. So community over isolation, excitement over entertainment. That's about worship. People will, you will participate in what you're excited about. You will stand at a Clemson football game, if you're a real Christian, and you will shout and cheer and you will yell at the TV because you're excited about it. You will participate. Um, but, you know, then, then there's like North Carolina basketball. No one really cares that much about it. So we don't really get excited about it, you know. Um, <laughs> we're, we participate in what we're excited about, and so when we talk about worship, we want you, the reason we do worship the way we do is because we want you to be excited about worship. Worship is not for entertainment. The last thing that we care most about, or not most, but one thing that makes us who we are is multiplication over addition. We, could, we couldn't care less. Did I say that right? Yeah. We couldn't care less about the size of Restore Church. We, we believe that God continues to bless us because we preach the gospel and we use his word to do that. Uh, but um, we care more about the growth of the kingdom. And so it's in our DNA to try to plant more churches, not to grow an empire. In the middle of all of that, we say that people are our priority. Of course, worshiping God is our priority, but people are our priority because John uses the stories of people to tell the stories of Jesus. I wonder if he could do that with you. I mean, I, I know he can. If you, tell, if you were to tell your story, where would you start? Uh, would you start, you know, I was born in Kentucky? Would you start uh, today? Would you start at the beginning of your career? Where would you end? Would you picture dream of your future family, or, or would you finish your story with where you live today? What would be the highlights? What would you include? Uh, career, your medals, your, uh, the birth of your children, the day you got married. What would you leave out? The parts that you don't want anyone to know, the parts that you've chosen to block out and you've just forgotten. What creates you? What creates your story? We say this a lot here. We embrace the mess. We love the mess. Eh, sometimes we don't love it. Um, but our stories, our lives are messy. Amen? Amen. My life is messy. It's tough to trudge through at times. And that's why community is so important to us. Because we want to do that with you. And so when we, we want you, when you come here, we want you to don't check your baggage at the door, but bring it in with you. Now, what that, where that leaves us as a church when we say that we embrace the mess, you can't put one foot in and leave one foot out. When we say we embrace the mess, what we mean is we're going to jump into your life 100%. And that also means that we jump into our culture 100%. It's, uh, it's right here that I feel like we need to address what happened Monday in our country. Because if we're going to embrace the mess, we're going to embrace it. We're going to jump two feet in, and I just want to, uh, so I, I wrote this, I had a couple people read it, and um, so I, I don't usually read word for word, but I want you to know our heartbeat here. <clears throat> this past Monday, the United States received a wake-up call to the moral decay of our country. 
We saw a heinous law passed in New York City that allows the full-term abortions. As a general rule, I typically don't speak about political situations at church, but I believe this subject to be a matter of the heart, not a political one. And so for a moment, I'd like to speak to you on behalf of Restore Church on how we as an organization and as Christ followers will interpret the actions that happened on Monday. We believe in life. We believe in the sanctity of every life. We believe that life begins at conception and therefore the life of babies should be protected. Therefore, we as an institution do not agree with what was declared on Monday. However, as Christians, we should continue to expect the moral decay of our country and the culture around us. As saddened as we may be this morning, we can't expect anything less than for the spread of those types of rulings and decisions to continue and eventually will make its way to North Carolina and the area around us. So, here's how we as a church will continue to function in matters like this. We, will be, we believe the Bible to be true. Therefore, we will teach truth. We will defend what is true. And we will not be distracted or derailed from it. We will teach truth with grace. And we will teach it with compassion. We will lead with grace that is supported by truth. We will not condemn we will love first, we will love first, and we will earn the right to speak truth into people's lives. As a church, we will continue to pray for our nation's leaders. We will love babies, we will love mothers, we will love fathers, we will weep, we will mourn, we will celebrate life. We will love mothers who have had abortions, and we will do it with grace, and we will do it with humility and with compassion and with our arms wide open. We will pray for mothers who have had abortions and the toll that it takes on them physically, emotionally, relationally, and spiritually. Restore Church will love people recklessly. We will refuse to cause more division in this nation, but instead we will be a light, we will be a beacon of peace, and we will be a place of hope and of love and of joy. We will embrace the mess. We will embrace your mess. We will love your mess, and we will love you through it. We will not shy away from it. We will not blink. We will not flinch. We love. That's what we do because it's what God does. Someone mentioned this morning, you don't really get a break from that. You have to preach after that. <laughs> it's like, yeah, but, uh, man, God's word is true, and, and um, I don't know how to move on from that. Um, there were some things said this week by, air quotes, pastors and air quotes, Christians, that make me think twice about the gospel and their representation of it. Jesus spoke truth, but he did it with grace, and he led with love, and that's what we're going to do as a church, and I hope that you'll be a part of it. Um, hey, God, will you uh, uh, let us look at your word now? Um, God, give us the courage to love, 
and not condemn. God, give us the courage to love people who don't think like us or agree with us or vote like us or look like us. God, let us love like Jesus. Amen. All right, you're in John chapter 4. Shout amen. All right. Hey, man, that was a lot of you. I was ready to make a joke, but you, uh, you ruined that. John chapter, four, John chapter 4, verses 1 through 6. All right, we got to, let's work together. Now, Jesus learned that the Pharisees had heard that he was gaining and baptizing more disciples than John, John the Baptist. Uh, although, in fact, it was not Jesus who baptized, but his disciples. So he left Judea and went back once more to Galilee. Now he had to go through Samaria. Uh, If you're an underliner or a highlighter, that's a good verse. Verse 5, so he came to a town in Samaria called Sychar, near the plot of ground that Jacob had given given to his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there, and Jesus, tired as he was from the journey, sat down by the well. It was about noon. Jesus at this point in his life and in his ministry start or in the book and in the book of John is starting to gain some notoriety. People are are figuring out who he is. I mean, what we already read is that uh, he performed he turned water into wine. Then he walks into the temple and starts flipping tables. You're going to get someone's attention there, especially the Pharisees. He's made his way from Judea to Galilee plenty of times. It was in Galilee, uh, we'll show you a map in a second, so actually, you can pull that map up now. Uh, it was in Galilee where he does the, he does the um, you see up here at North Galilee, in Cana is where he does the miracle where he turns water into wine. You see Jerusalem down here where the temple is, that's where in the same chapter, in John chapter 2, where he gets angry, he goes into the temple and flips uh, tables and the money changers out. It was there in Jerusalem, John chapter 3, where he gains the attention of the religious leaders. You remember Nicodemus, who comes to Jesus at night, in the cover of night, to have access to Jesus. But also, he doesn't want to ruin his reputation. He asks Jesus just about who he was. It's there where Jesus says, For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son, that whoever believes in him will not perish, but have everlasting life. Jesus is well-traveled to this point in John 4. And people are recognizing and know who he is, and they're starting to learn um, about what he stands for. Did you underline John 4, I mean John chapter 4, verse 4, where it said, now he had to go through Samaria. What's the the, uh, shortest distance between two points? It's a straight line. Um, so if Jesus, all right, were to travel from Galilee to Judea, from Judea to Galilee, what would be the, the most logical path to go? A straight line through Samaria. But John feels the need to tell us in verse four that Jesus, now he had to go through Samaria. Every Jewish person would like gasp at this. And no one gasped, so I guess there's not many Jewish people in here. Someone just sneezed. So maybe, maybe you're the reverse of Jewish. I don't know what that is. Um, so Jesus, being in Jerusalem and having, having had that conversation with Nicodemus, has to, go through, has to go to Galilee, and John tells us in verse 4, now he had to go through Samaria. 
I believe this had to be a personal conviction. See, you know, our, our culture doesn't know anything about racial tension, do we? Their culture was, the tension, the racial tension was so thick. People in Samaria hated Jewish people, and Jewish people hated people in Samaria. The people in, the Jewish people that made up Galilee and Judea hated Samaritans so much because they were half-breeds of Jewish and uh, what we call Gentile, which is just not Jewish. Jewish people thought of them as tainted. God's people, you have ruined God's people by marrying and having children with people who aren't Jewish. Now, this is our culture too. When someone hates us, well, I hate you too. And so, the generation after generation, Samaritans are like, all right, you're treating me this way. I hate you also. That's the power of what love can do when done correctly, right? But people in Samaritans are like, or in Samaria are like, well, if you hate me, I hate you. Now, generation, hate breeds hate, right? And so, especially when it's generation after generation after generation after generation. Here is the epitome of where this hate comes from. If you were Jewish and you were to travel from Galilee to Judea, you didn't walk through Samaria. Because... Jewish people didn't want to touch the same dust as a Samaritan. And in writings outside of the Bible, uh, history writings about first century, uh, first century culture, Jewish people didn't want to breathe the same air as a Samaritan. Yet we're not the first culture to deal with racial tension. Here's what a Jewish person would do if they were to try to travel from Jerusalem to Galilee or, yeah, from Jerusalem to Cana, which Jesus has already done once in the book of John, they would walk or, or take, you know, uh, some kind of animal, donkey or something, around. They would cross the Jordan River, which was dangerous. They would come up the east side of it and then cross back over into Galilee. Or if they wanted to speed things up, they would just go out here into the Mediterranean Sea. They would try to cross down here on uh, Syrophoenicia and then cross over here into the Mediterranean and come down Judea. They would put their own physical life in danger just so they didn't have to breathe the same air. Racism existed in the Bible. Uh, it just looked different. Jesus had to go through Samaria. He just did. He was tired of it, and he wanted to break down the barriers of what people thought about Samaritan people. All right, let's read verse seven, verses 7 to 9 um, in our Bibles. It says this, uh, chapter 4, John chapter 4, verse 7 to 9, when a Samaritan woman came to draw water, Jesus said to her, will you give me a drink? And his disciples uh, had gone to the town to buy food. The Samaritan woman said to him, You are a Jew, and I am a Samaritan woman. How can you ask me for a drink? For Jews do not associate with Samaritans. This woman, I don't know if you can tell, has a lot going against her. Did you notice Jesus' Jesus's humanity? It's as tired as he was. He sat down by the well, he asks her, he's thirsty, he asks her for a drink of water. Um, and as it stands, this woman that Jesus 
talks to. He's got a lot going against her. And I just want to use the couple of verses we just read to help us learn her story. Because remember, John uses the stories of people to tell the story of Jesus. How do these verses describe her? Well, first, she is a Samaritan woman. Now, that already, we already learned the racial tension that it has when she's standing with a superior Jew. Now, she doesn't understand how high the superiority goes, right? Like, she's standing in front of the Son of God. She doesn't get that right now. And she says... uh, um, but she, so she doesn't really realize how deep that's happening. But being a Samaritan in front of a Jew, you really didn't belong. So maybe she feels like, like an outcast. Um, maybe she feels like uh, judged <clears throat> already. Now along with that, she's a woman. She says, I am a Samaritan woman. Uh, women, don't, don't charge me, okay, here. Uh, but in the first century, women, man, they were property, okay? They were told what, they were told what to do, uh, and they were told how to do it. Uh, and sometimes they were used in trade. Um, sometimes they were told who to marry. Well, most of the time they were told who to marry, had no option about it. Uh, husbands, this is not a good time for a joke, so don't say any or nudge anybody, okay? Just looking out for your life. I'm trying to preserve it. We believe in the sanctity of life. And that includes yours. Um, but in this, in this culture, a woman might feel worthless. Like there's, there's no worth to her. Now what's interesting is that she's by herself. Again, in the first century, women didn't travel alone. A lot of the reasons were practical. Safety in numbers. Um, a well, I don't know if you have in your mind, uh, you know, the wells that you might see in a, in a movie with the high rocks and then they crank down a, a, a pail or something. But th- that's not what these wells looked like. And actually, it probably wouldn't have been such a far-fetched idea for one to fall in. And so having people, having a group of numbers around you in the middle of the day uh, was practical. It was useful. But she's by herself. She's lonely. She's been, she's not only seen, not only does she feel alone in her work, but she's an outcast in her own society. Right? No one wants to go work with, with that woman. Let's, let's see what uh, the rest of the story has to say. Look at verse 10, verses 10 and 15. Uh, Jesus answered her. If you knew the gift of God and who it is that asks you for a drink, you would have asked him, and he would have given you the living water. Sir, the woman said, you have nothing to draw with, and the, water, and the well is deep. Where can you get this living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob, who gave us this well and drank from it himself, as did also his sons and his livestock. Jesus answered, everyone who drinks this water will be thirsty again, but whoever drinks the water I give them will never thirst again. Indeed, the water I give them will become in them a spring of water welling up to eternal life. If you're a highlighter, underliner, or make a star next to that, that's worth knowing. Verse 15, 
The woman said to him, Sir, give me this water so that I won't get thirsty and have to keep coming to draw water again. Jesus is right in front of this woman, and he's right in front of us saying the same thing, that nothing is impossible with God. He's saying today that for you, a new life, a new spiritual journey is possible. He offers this woman a drink of water that will take away her quench for being thirsty. Um, but the woman's response is sarcasm. Now, okay, I've talked about sarcasm. Sarcasm is not a love language. Okay. Uh, I'm trying to learn that sarcasm, 98% of the time, is not helpful. The other 2% of the time is when you're talking to a toddler who doesn't understand sarcasm. <laughs> um, and then it just turns out bad. If you have a toddler, be sarcastic for fun to see how they respond. It's hilarious. It's not hilarious. Actually, just disregard everything I just said about being sarcastic to toddlers. Um, sarcasm, most of the time, is not helpful. Uh, it creates confusion. Uh, and uh, Kendra, who is our uh, operations director here at Restore, she's, she took the Sunday off this morning, she says that uh, sarcasm is anger dressed up in a clown suit, which if you think about that analogy, it's, it's really good. He says to her, I've got this water for you. It's living water. She says, are you greater? You think you're greater than our father Jacob, who gave us this well? Now, did you notice she called what she said about the father Jacob? She says, it's, it's our father, she says. It's our father Jacob. And she said, are you greater than him? You, you didn't even bring anything to draw water up with. You know what? If you have this water, Joker, give me some. Because then I wouldn't have to come back and do this again. Can you sense the bitter tone in her voice. Don't insult me with this water. It almost sounds like if you're her that he might be making fun of her. And why wouldn't she think that? She's a Samaritan and he's a Jew. But I can sense some bitterness and we'll see why she might have that in her life uh, to begin with. Let's keep going. Verse 16 to 17. Um, verse 16. The, anybody got these Bibles? Dude, the letters are tiny. I guess I'm, we're going to start passing out Bibles and magnifying glasses. Verse 16. Here we go. Man, I'm getting old, y'all. All right, here we go. He told her, go and call your husband and come back. I have no husband, she replied. And Jesus said to her, you are right when you say you have no husband. The fact is, you've had five husbands, and the man you have now is not your husband, what you have said is quite true. Boom, roasted. Verse 19. Uh, well, let, let's pause right there. Whew, that stings. Not only does, uh, is this relationship a little bit off kilter in her mind, but man, how does he know? Right? Now, this woman, she's been around the block a little bit, and Jesus knows. Now, it's probably common knowledge 
right? It's probably why she's alone, why she doesn't have a man with her or a group of women with her. She says, I have no husband. And Jesus says, yeah, you're right. You don't have a husband. Matter of fact, the man you're living with now isn't your husband. You've had five of them. Can you, uh, you ever been called out on your sin? Doesn't feel good. <laughs> you ever recognize your sin or remember your sin? There's a lot of shame that comes with that. I've not been a Christian my whole life, and for a long time I wanted nothing to do with God. And there's a lot of my life that I'm ashamed of. And when I come into contact or, or in view of God, Jesus, it's real easy for that shame to just rush back in. Now, for this woman, this is a, like, blind, she's blindsided, right? I mean, how would, how would anyone know? She might have thought she was getting away with one. Jesus says, you're right. You have no husband. And he says, uh, and the woman, or and the man that you are with is not your husband. The fact is you've had five, and the man you are, that you now have is not your husband. It's in verse uh, 18. She's been in multiple relationships. Now remember, relationships in the first century are a lot different. Did you know in the first century a woman could not ask for a divorce? It was only a man who could apply for one. And he would go down and get a certification and then come back with it. The, the wife couldn't. Women had no power in the relationship. Man, I, I would imagine that she, this has happened to her five times. That a man has come back and said, ah, I'm done. I would imagine at this point she feels used. Right? I got what I needed. Now I'm done with you. And in this culture, again, after being divorced or used, she's probably not wanted by many people. She might feel ruined. Like, no one will really want me anymore. Remember the story of Joseph and Mary? They find out she's pregnant through the Holy Spirit. And Joseph says, or it says that Joseph planned to take her and divorce her privately so that she didn't have any shame. The husband applying for a divorce and the shame associated with the divorce. Man, this story tells a life of a woman that, that we all know. Maybe you're this woman. Maybe this morning your, lo your life looks a lot like this. Maybe you have some built-up bitterness that you're just dying to get out. Maybe you came in carrying a baggage of shame or guilt or humility. Maybe yours looks different than this, this woman's messages. Maybe yours looks like fear or, or, or anxiety. I mean, may, maybe you came in wearing this, like, and you expected people to see it when you came in on, on your face, right? Like, this is some heavy stuff, and this picture of this woman is bleak. And you know, a religious person should have nothing to do with her. 
My heart bled this week, all week. And that, I don't know what you call this, declaration, I guess. Uh, it says, we will weep. Jesus, on his way to Jerusalem uh, on Palm Sunday, the week before Easter, that uh, we celebrate. So it's just a couple days before he dies. It's the inauguration of a king, right? Remember, they lay down, palm, we call it Palm Sunday, they lay down palm branches so that his, his donkey's feet wouldn't touch the dirt. You would think, y'all, if y'all are gonna, if someone's gonna make me king, right? Like you guys are gonna put down uh, mats so that my car tires don't roll on the road. Now you're laughing, but you haven't seen my 2009 Honda Civic, all right? Um, I'm not gonna be weeping. I'll be celebrating. I'm gonna have my windows down and have need to breathe pumping through my speakers so everyone can hear it. I mean, it's going to be a celebration for me. It says that Jesus wept for Jerusalem because they didn't know what peace was coming to them. That's why I wept this week. It's because there are women who will never know the peace of Jesus that comes after, that can come after an abortion. Some of the things that, I, I think I mentioned this, but some of the things I saw if, if I were a woman who might share some of these characteristics may never know the peace that comes from Jesus because of the way some Christians have talked to them or the picture that they painted. That's why it's so important for us to lead with grace that's supported by truth. Jesus wept because there were people who didn't know peace. And this woman, man, she's got the card stacked against her. And for a religious person, I mean, you got God in the flesh. For a religious person who's reading this, his next move should be to walk, well, go back down to Judea. Walk around the Jordan River and go back up to Galilee the way that's proper. But what Jesus did in verse 4 is he had to go through Samaria because he had to pursue people like this. He had to pursue you and he had to pursue me that carries baggage like that because there are stories that are worth telling. And yours is one of them. And this woman's is one of them. Look, look what happens next. Um, she says in verse 19, Sir, the woman said, I can see that you are a prophet. Our ancestors worshipped on this mountain, but you Jews claim that the place where we must worship is in Jerusalem. Jesus replied, Woman, believe me, a time's coming when you will worship the Father neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem. You Samaritans worship what you do not know. We worship what we do know, for salvation is from the Jews. Yet a time is coming and has now come when the true worshipers will worship the Father in the spirit and in truth, for they are the kind of worshipers the Father seeks. God is spirit and his worshipers must worship in the spirit. And the woman says, I know that Messiah is coming and when he comes, he will explain everything to us. This woman has been living in anticipation of all of these things being, resolved, being resolved. She's looking forward to the day that someone will come and forgive her of all of these things. 
She says there's one day that a Messiah is coming. I mean, she must think about this every day when she wakes up and every moment she thinks about her sin, that one day the Messiah is going to come and he's going to make a way for me to come back to God. I can't wait. But man, how many years has she had to live with this shame? She might be asking a question that some of you have been asking for years. God, where are you? Jesus, are, are you there? Because that gone, and if I haven't seen you in like the last five years of my life, I see you blessing everybody else, but not me. God, are you there? Because their marriage is rocking, and I know them. They're not that great of people. But my marriage is, it's on its way out. God, are you there? Because I don't know if I can take any more life. Right? Nobody's ever asked this question, just me. I bet this woman asked every day of her life, when will this Messiah come back? John's goal for writing John is so we can know that Jesus is 100% human and 100% God. There's a scene in the Old Testament that Moses, God's trying to get Moses' attention, and he, he, he does it through a burning bush. Moses sees this bush that's on fire, but it's not burning, right? And God walks, or Moses walks up to it, and he's like, what's going on? And God starts to talk to Moses. He says, Moses, I want you to walk into the most powerful man in the world, uh, his office. Oh, yeah, they also want you for murder, and uh, he used to be your brother. And I want you to tell him to let my people his workforce, and the only way his kingdom survives, to let those people go. And finally, he musters up enough courage after God proves himself to him through a couple miracles. And he says, all right, I'm going to go. But who should I say sent me? Anybody remember what God says? Tell them, I am sent you. There are a couple times. So God's name, Yahweh, I am. And a couple times in the book of John, we see Jesus use those same words. She says, there's one day that a Messiah is going to come that's going to free me from all of these things. Look at where, verse 26. Then Jesus declared, I, the one who's speaking to you, I am. Have you ever been asking your question, Jesus, where are you? Are you there? God has never left you. <clears throat> He's never forsaken you. He is. Not he will be. Not he used to be. Or one day maybe. Jesus says, I am. Notice he doesn't flinch at this woman's mess. Now he digs right in. He gets involved. And now this woman these things, I've been used, I am bitter, I am alone, I am. In this moment, she is restored. Pun completely intended. She is redeemed, she is fulfilled. Jesus says, those are not who you are. Right? You are forgiven. You are God's child. Because I am. Now, I love this woman's story. A lot of it because 
it's relatable to me. I felt like I couldn't be a Christ follower. I definitely couldn't be a pastor, right? I really shouldn't be planting a church, and I really shouldn't preach every Sunday. Because, y'all, if you knew the baggage that I carry week in and week out about my identity, about who I am, about the shame that, man, I, Facebook is dangerous. Because I'm friends with people from high school on there. And uh, the, the anxiety is real when it says, so-and-so from high school has tagged you in a post. I'm like, oh, please, Lord, please, please don't do this. And they're just trying to sell me rodent in fields or something. <laughs> um, there's a lot of shame, a lot of regret. Um, I've got to tell you this, being a pastor is lonely. It's hard for us to, to, to have really, really deep relationships. Um, living in a, we call it a fishbowl as a pastor. Our family is in a fishbowl. You know what I'm saying? You guys can share whatever you want on social media. We cannot. Although we really want to. And it's like, you know what? You need to just tag them in it. No. Uh, we... Um, now we, li- we live in a fishbowl for, for all of you to see. We embrace that as a family. Uh, we, we enjoy that. We try to be an example the best we can, but sometimes, y'all, we fail. And when we fail, it's not like, uh, oops. But we carry the burden of people who are trying to develop spiritually or watching us. You see, like, we can carry all of these back, we can carry all these bags with us, but what good is it? When Jesus asks us to leave them all at the foot of the cross. Here's what I love about this woman's story. Is it doesn't end in verse 26. Here's what happens. Skip down to verse 39 and read the rest of this woman's story. Many of the Samaritans, okay, get it, remember the animosity. Many of the Samaritans from the town, believed in him because of the woman's story, because of her testimony. So when the Samaritans came to him, they urged him to stay with them, and he stayed there for two days. And because of his words, many more became believers. They said to the woman, we no longer believe just because of what you said. Now we have heard for ourselves, and we know that this man really is the Savior of the world. Whoa. Remember John tells the story of Jesus through the story of people. He uses people's stories to tell the story of Jesus. One of the most valuable things to, re- to making up Restore Church is your story. Because your story can tell Jesus' story. So uh, remember what we, we try to say at the end of this uh, week, or at the end of each message? Hey, here, here are some things that you can do today that can build your faith for tomorrow. Here's what you can put into practice today so that this can be applied tomorrow. Here's some simple homework. Write down your story. Go home and type it up. Pull out a piece of paper. Use a pencil. Uh, pencil. Uh, there were these things we used to use in school to write down things. Use a, use a pencil. Highlight out your story. Write out your story. 
And when you're finished, if Christ's story isn't told in it, you might need to reevaluate your relationship with Jesus. But it will really start to help you. Because listen, your story is not meant to just be and sit down on a piece of paper. Your story is meant to tell Jesus' story. And if this story can be told 2,019 years later, who's to say yours won't either? You have meaning in Jesus. You have worth in the family of God. You belong, and your story can tell the story of Jesus. Uh, let's pray. Hey, God, we, we love you, and, uh, man, we thank you for the life of this woman. That, uh, man, that you had to go through Samaria. Jesus, thank you that you had to go to the cross for us. And, uh, God, I'm not worthy of your sacrifice. At times, God, my life is not. There's some days, Lord, that I confess that I end and I look less like Jesus than when I began. God, forgive me. Forgive us. But God, through this woman's story, we, we're learning that we're forgiven. We're not those things. We're who you say that we are. Lord, help us to believe that all the time. Lord, let our story reflect completely around yours. God, we love you. Um, thanks for giving us meaning and fulfillment. We pray all these things in, in Jesus' name. Amen.